spread all the way out to the back. <laughs> this is working. Yeah. Okay. Hello. If, really, if you could, you could actually move up a little bit. I feel like I'm talking to a, uh, an illuminated sign in the half of a car hanging from the ceiling. It's a little disconcerting. Yeah, I was just want to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. we, we both smell really, really good. So, like, the closer you get, the more you can enjoy that. <laughs> or at least Ed does. I showered. Not very punk of me, but... Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, for those of you here who are not in the class I teach here, uh, my name's Ed. Uh, I'm the professor of a class about punk rock that's taught here at Temple. Um, and this is Joe Gervasi, who is the curator of Loud Fast Philly, a project documenting Philadelphia's punk rock scene. Hi, Ed, and hi, folks who came out to hear this. <laughs> okay, so the idea here is um, it'll be conversational, and there'll be, you know, we can guys can ask any questions you want. I figure, I don't know, just let them ask questions as they come, I guess, right? I mean, whatever's clever, yeah, yeah. fine. So I'm going to start by asking Joe a few like just questions about his own uh, project, his own history, and then we're going to ask some general questions about punk, about Philly punk, about the interviews he's done. All the interviews he's done are available online at the Loudfast Philly website, uh, as well as all these pictures here, which are of uh, various individuals from the Philadelphia punk rock scene, and all of that is online as well. And the photographer is here tonight, Karen. Kirchhoff, Karen Kirchhoff right there. Yeah, so Karen here is the photographer for all of those. Alum of Tyler. Yeah, and she is an alum of Tyler. <laughs> okay, so, um, Joe, why don't you start by just telling us how you became interested in punk rock? Uh, I was born in 1971, and by the mid-1980s, when I was a teenager, uh, I was surrounded by what teenage me thought was a really vacuous culture. Uh, I couldn't relate to the popular music that the, the kids in, in my high school liked because songs about cars and girls and getting fucked up and all this kind of stuff, it, it said, as the Smiths would say, it said nothing to me about my life. It, it meant nothing to me. Uh, so I had liked some uh, psychedelic music and some 70s prog rock and stuff like that, but I, I wasn't completely immersed in music and I was primed for something. Uh, and I had a pen pal from when I was a kid who was an older guy who, uh, his name was James Walker, and he was in the Air Force, and he was uh, a closeted gay man who was trying to conceal his homosexuality from his fundamentalist Christian family, from the military people that he was around in the Air Force, and indeed from himself. It, he, he didn't tell me any of this, but this later came out. And I had heard that there was some band called the Sex Pistols and that they were really you know, this, this crazy band and I was very curious to hear them. And we used to exchange audio cassettes. Of, of, we would talk to each other and we'd send a tape because this is obviously uh, pre-internet. So we would initially we wrote letters and then we would send these tapes to one another talking. And he sent me uh, a tape with the Sex Pistols which uh, was like a lightning bolt into my head at the time because it was something that was, it was, it certainly spoke to me uh, as a young man being, uh, it was angry, it was, it was political, it was snotty, it was, it was nothing like what I was hearing in, in the overall culture around me. And um, although these recordings had come out, this was 1987, so, the, so these recordings came out 10 years before I heard them. And at the time, I wasn't even aware if there, if there was a scene or if this was something that was still around and still vital, but I was certainly curious about it. And at the same time, my brother, Bull, who was here as well, uh, who was three years younger than me, he was uh, 14 at the time, or I guess 13, because I was 16, um, uh, had also, we both got into this at the same time, and we found that uh, this was a thriving scene. There were bands performing this type of music that had progressed considerably since uh, 1977, and that there were uh, clubs in Philadelphia, uh, it was Club Pizzazz and Revival, and then there was City Gardens and Trenton. There were places where you could see these type of bands, and it was a world that, if we were interested, we could potentially join in, and ultimately, uh, we did. Cool. Okay, and so, when did you start Loud Fast Philly? So, 87 or so, you get into punk rock. Obviously, you probably didn't start Loud Fast Philly right away. No. So, what's the kind of, when do you start that? 
not long after we were, got interested in punk, we, we wanted to become participants because the one thing that punk said to us that, that no other music that we were hearing was saying was, you need to be an active participant in this thing if you're going to be a part of it. That you, you're not going to stand on the side and watch other people do things. And this was really exciting to us, and I think that this was ultimately one of the most important lessons that we got from punk um, was that it was a do-it-yourself uh, form of music and subculture. Uh, and it was really essential that if you were going to be a part of it, you were going to be a contributing part of it. And having listened to a lot of lyrics uh, from a lot of political bands, social bands that uh, had a very positive or forward-looking agenda or who were uh, espousing strong political ideals, we felt that what we were going to be entering into was a, a, a realm of like-minded people who were really set on saying, fuck you to Reagan, and, you know, this was 1987, uh, and uh, who were active in, in political and social causes and things like that. And we did find some of that, but we also found a scene at that time that was rife with a lot of violence, internal violence, that is, the participants at the shows uh, essentially beating the shit out of each other, as well as external violence with people who would come in. Their uh, skinhead was really popular at the time, and these were uh, essentially fascist skinheads who would come in uh, from Atlantic City or from Allentown to shows and terrorize people who were there uh, because they saw on television that someone was you know, smashing a chair or something on Geraldo's stage and they thought this was a really cool thing, something like that. And, and you could find that very few people could, in effect, terrorize a large group of people. So initially, we were, I think we were a little bit disillusioned at the state of this thing because we really wanted it to be far more positive and engaged, and, and we didn't see as much of that as we wanted to. So that we found that when we became participants in the scene, that individual scenes around the country ultimately would reflect the, the ethos of the individuals involved, and that if you were a charismatic person, and if you projected something out to the people around you, you could in effect change the tide of that scene and make it into something that was more reflective of your values. And that's what we wanted to do early on, was see something that, that looked more like what we imagined punk to be when we read these lyric sheets that were so important to us. Uh, so early on we started doing shows in, we grew up in uh, Blackwood, New Jersey, which is sort of a blue collar working class suburb of Philadelphia. And we started doing shows there and ultimately all moved to Philadelphia as we became adults and started doing shows here as a group called the Cabbage Collective, where we invited in anyone who wanted to take part in this thing uh, would be part of this decision-making process to have these shows that essentially espouse the ideals that we felt were important. The shows uh, never had alcohol uh, or drugs or smoking. Uh, they were in alternative spaces, so rather than having them in bars that usually excluded a huge number of the people who would potentially want to attend the events and were filled with smoke and, and you know, drunken people and all this, that we would use the church basement, we used the church uh, at 48th for Baltimore uh, initially, and the ACT UP space and some other places. And this was the Cabbage Collective, and, and for several years I think that we managed to create something that we felt was really vital. Uh, we would have free food there, there'd be vegan food set up, and there would be people selling zines and selling records, and we felt like it was a, a genuine reflection of community, and that it's possible to diffuse all of the violence that would potentially creep into a scene like that by not only removing the substances that fuel the violence, but also, if you have free food, if you eat somebody's really terrible, watery, vegan chili, you're probably not going to be punching somebody in the head later on. And that proved to be pretty effective. And, and Cabbage Collective wound up you know, going for, for several years. We did that until about uh, 1997, 98. Uh, I, and then all the members of the group wound up doing other projects. I do cult film screenings with Exhumed Films now. And uh, my brother played in a series of bands that toured around the world. And other members of the, the collective did a lot of other stuff as well. Um, coming into Loud Fast Philly, uh, Philomoca, which is a, an alternative um, screening and music performance space in North Philly, uh, has a film festival that's essentially centered around, or initially was centered around Philly films, now it's open to other stuff. Uh, and I was approached as a film programmer to show something 
possibly music related and related to Philly uh, for the, the first of those film festivals. And uh, initially there was supposed to be a documentary about the great Philly hardcore band Ruin, but the documentary wasn't completed at the time. And the idea we came up with was a series of clips of bands from uh, the 1970s to the present that w uh, we would show to an audience. And in between the clips, we would have people who were in the actual bands who could stand up and, and talk a little bit about what the viewers just saw. And then people in the audience could ask them questions about it if they wanted to. Uh, and it was really important in, in putting the project together to say that this wasn't something that began in 1976-77 and ended in whatever, 1980, 1983, 1985, because they had seen a lot of the documentaries and read the books about punk that always, they had a definitive starting point, uh, and often there was a definitive ending point, and the ending point would come when the bands that were profiled made a bad metal record, or uh, they picked up a drug addiction, or the people just went off and did other things with their lives, and I felt that that really excluded a lot of younger people who were still taking part in the scene that I thought was really vital, and it would say to people, the thing that you're in now isn't real, the only thing that matters is the thing that we did back in, whatever, the 70s or 80s. So when putting together these clips, it was, it was critical that they showed current bands performing in uh, basements and warehouses and squats and stuff in, in Philadelphia to show that this is still something that's happening now. Uh, and then, as it was coming together, I felt that the uh, it, there's a certain fleeting nature in being able to, to show this to an audience and that you can get perhaps 100 or 200 people to come out to the screening of the event, but then that's it, there's nothing else. And that's all the people who will ever get to see this thing. Uh, and I wanted it to be a more permanent part of the project. And the idea with that was that I would interview people and it would just be me and this person that I was interviewing in their voice, it wouldn't be edited, so it wouldn't be a reflection of my version of their story or my perception of who they were, but rather it would purely be them. Uh, and the, the listener would have this person inside their ear and there would be no other distractions, and you would get the story of this person's life and also how it connected to neighborhoods in Philadelphia and the, and the, the history of the city. Uh, and as I began to, to speak to some people for this, it, it dawned on me that there was no way to, to talk to five people if I didn't talk to another 10 people or another 20 or another 30 because there would be no other way to get a full picture of uh, the participants in this scene. And I wanted it to be something that showed the youngest people who were involved in the scene. And the, at the time, the youngest person that I spoke to was 19. And then the oldest, the oldest person was about 75, so it was a great age range. And I also wanted it to look like the city of Philadelphia, because in watching a lot of these punk documentaries, I saw uh, all old white dudes, uh, or older. Uh, and my involvement in, in punk in, in the city of Philadelphia was always, it was really diverse. There was, everybody was there. There was almost as many women as men, and there were all races, and there were lots of gay people involved, and lots of all different sorts of people were involved in this scene. A lot of them weren't necessarily even great fans of the music, but found that this was a sort of a refuge for them, a place that they could go where they would be comfortable. So in order to, to present this to, to listeners, it really had to look like the city of Philadelphia. And the crucial part of having it look like Philadelphia was to have Karen Kirchhoff, the photographer, come and take these fantastic portraits of, of these individuals um, that not only do I think that they're very beautiful pictures, but I think it shows the diversity of the individuals uh, that I had a chance to speak to. And now, I guess going on uh, three or four years later, I guess four years later almost, uh, there's just always more people to talk to. So that is a very long answer, uh, but that, that is the genesis of the project. Okay, so it's kind of a good segue into asking the more general questions about uh, what you've what you've kind of found about punk rock through doing these interviews. So first I'd say, from your experiences from the interviews you've done, why do people develop an interest in punk rock? I think for a lot of people it, it may be in the same way that it, it affected me, which was this is a whole other, other world that has a different set of values, a different set of ethics, uh, a different morality than the dominant culture. 
And I know that from, from my experience as a young person, as I was saying earlier, there were a lot of people who were drawn to this scene who uh, weren't necessarily that into the music, but felt like this was a place with other creative or artistic people or weird people where they weren't going to get called faggot and clocked in the head. You know, that they would feel like they were welcome there. And this wasn't true necessarily of all scenes in the United States. I'm sure that some other places were far less welcoming. But I think that in general, the South Jersey scene that we were in in, in Philadelphia was, was welcoming to those types of people. Uh, and I think that also it, it allowed people, there was a very low bar of entry. I think that there are very few things in, in this country or in this world, in this society, that allows people to come in and immediately take part who don't necessarily have a piece of paper that says you are certified to do this now. So you have, in effect, teenagers uh, or people who are in their early 20s who have no net, not necessarily certified to do anything, but yet can come in and put on a concert, can uh, organize an event, can put out a zine, can travel around the country or the world. For a lot of people that I knew who grew up rather modestly and didn't get the opportunity to go uh, backpacking in Europe uh, before they went to college or got a car when they were 18, if they were in a band, they could travel around the country and indeed the world and stay with people whom they had never met. Uh, there was sort of what uh, I guess Harris would call a, a network of friends where people, you would be welcomed into people's homes and you would play in little, you know, little cities or little towns and, all around the country, and there would be an atmosphere that was welcoming to you. So if you rolled in with the band, I never played in bands, but uh, I would be sort of the roadie that couldn't really lift anything because I weighed 120 pounds. So I would be like, sell a t-shirt or you know, keep somebody awake when driving or whatever. But you roll into some dopey town in Kansas, and there's a bunch of friendly folks there, and they're going to make you a giant vat of terrible spaghetti. Uh, and you're going to sleep on their floor, and they're going to take you to the, the used bookstore, the record store, and you're going to get fleas from their cat, and you know you're, they're going to say like, oh, this is a really cool place. We have to show you where this is like abandoned hospital we could go in. And you could you could spend weeks or a month in a crappy band that constantly breaks down doing these kind of things, which was really fun. Um, and I think fun should never be forgotten, especially in discussing punk in a you know more academic sense, is that. It's really fun to jump on somebody's head, you know, to be in a basement where it's 120 degrees and you're sweating and people are jumping all over the place. And it's a, it's a blast. And that feeling of togetherness and, and that, that pleasure is something that, that shouldn't be forgotten. Uh, and I'll tell you just a really quick sort of side story about Weird Ruins. Um, long ago, in the early 1990s, I was uh, traveling around different places uh, on a Greyhound bus, and I went to visit a friend of mine named Bob Conrad, who did a zine, I think it was called Second Guess, and he lived in Reno, Nevada, and we went to, I went to visit him, and he took me out to the park way out in the desert where there was ruins of something. I don't know what was ultimately there, but there was a wall, and Bob Conrad had to show me this particular thing. We went all the way out in the desert, and we finally get to this giant wall, and spray painted on the wall in letters that are like, six foot in height, it says, Bob Conrad sucks his daddy's dick. And that was him. And I said, oh, congratulations, Bob Conrad. Somebody really loves you. <laughs> so you mentioned early on that when you first got into punk, um, you had these hopes of what it would be. Uh, and then as you learned more, you found, like many of us do, I think, that only sometimes does punk kind of live up to that ideal you had of it, that political, social ideal. Has, over the years beyond that, your idea of what punk is changed and has, have the interviews you've done influenced that? I think that what I've seen both from watching people that I know who've been involved in the scene and then doing the interviews is that a lot of people take the, this creative drive that they brought into punk hardcore as young people and have taken it forward into other parts of their lives. And I think that, it, that the effect that it's had on them has been very positive in that um, I think the profession that most people involved in punk later went on to do would be teachers. Uh, I think that the, the desire to impart some sort of knowledge or to sort of change the dialogue in some way 
really stuck with some people. And, um, and I think that that's the thing that most people have carried forward is not all these people are necessarily still in a warehouse thrashing, uh, you know, but that they haven't necessarily distanced themselves from what came before. They may, may or may not still love the music, but I think that the, something about the ethos sticks with people, that it plants a certain seed in their head, and the seed often in some people grows into a really beautiful plant, into a really beautiful person. Not always, unfortunately, because I think that also, I mean, I don't want to create a sort of a whitewashed image of the scene, because unfortunately, there are other elements that, that can be rife in certain scenes, and that would be a drug abuse or addiction or alcoholism or something like that, where there are sets of people who gravitate towards a, a very nihilistic view of the world, a self-destructive view, and that if you are involved in a scene that, that uh, promotes or accepts uh, or allows those sort of ideas to fester, you can wind up with people who are seriously damaged. And I think most people who have been involved in punk know someone who uh, overdosed, perhaps to death, and, or perhaps uh, you know, wanted up making it through. But uh, I can't blame that on punk, but I can see it as a space where bad ideas can also fester, and sometimes you need strong voices to compel people away from those kind of bad ideas and into more creative uh, and less self-destructive outlets. I mean, if you want to destroy yourself, go, go forth into the world, and you'll find a world that will essentially grind you into the earth. So the place where you seek some sort of refuge shouldn't be the place that ultimately kills you. So you just mentioned that punk can often be a, well, I don't want to say often, but punk allows for, allows for nihilism at times and other kinds of uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, etc. So punk can be very nihilistic. It can also be very hopeful. Um, sometimes it can be both at the same time. Uh, for example, in the anarchist elements of punk, anarcho-punk, you find both nihilism and hope, uh, sometimes in the same song or the same individual. How do you find people kind of work with that ambiguity, both of which seem quite important to uh, punk identity? I, I think, like, as you say, I think anarcho-punk can often create a very dark vision of the, of the world that we live in. Uh, and I think that a lot of the lyrics of the past are as applicable today, and this is still a vibrant part of that scene. Um, but I think that the, the best of those bands are always pointing forward. They're saying that we're, we're, we're under a boot, we're under some sort of repression, but there's a way out, uh, sort of uh, by acting in a collective way, in, in working together, that there is a path away from this. And the best of these bands, the best of the bands that uh, were infected with some sort of nihilism were also uh, inoculated against that nihilism by having some sense of hope. And the best of these bands, I think, would have you know, sometimes if you're doing a song that's a minute and 11 seconds long, you can't really express a lot of deep ideas. And one of the criticisms of punk is that people communicate with uh, slogans, with really short little ideas that, that don't carry a lot of intellectual or political weight. But uh, while some of these bands do have really long uh, and involved lyrics, like, say, Conflict or, or Chumbawamba or Crass, the best of them point you in a direction to learn more about something. Uh, a band that, say, takes a stance against uh, animal abuse uh, in whatever form, either consuming animals uh, or using their, their skins to wear or for animal experimentation, will, gi will give you in their lyric sheet, uh, here are some books that you can read, here are some pamphlets, here are some directions you can go. And I think that the more astute uh, listener, participant, is going to look for more information. So it, the slogan is going to point them in a direction, but then here is genuine information that you can utilize that will make you a smarter person and make you a better citizen and make you more engaged. And I think that that's sort of the perfect balance of we're fucked, but maybe not if you actually do something. So you mentioned this idea of kind of passing on this information, right? Um, even if you don't do it through the lyrics, either because they're too short or because they just sound like screaming and maybe you're in the basement and the sound system sucks. And so even if uh, you could understand the screams, you might not be able to hear it that well over the drums, which happens a lot. 
But there is still that idea of passing on that message. Do you find that a lot of people feel a certain obligation to pass on that message, to kind of be a role model for future punks? I, I think that there, there is a fair bit of that. Uh, and I think that role models are, are really important in general, but I think that they've been important to punk as well, because the youngest of, of the young people that come into a scene like this are looking at other people to show them the way forward. Not only to uh, not reject them, but also to, to show them something, some, some way of living, some way of moving forward. And one of the things I wanted to get to in doing the interviews uh, was that in, in speaking to a, a diverse group of people, uh, you'll still find that in most punk shows it's probably going to be largely, say, white. Uh, but there's going to be a fair, especially in the city of Philadelphia, a fair representation of other types of people. So if you are a young, say, non-white person or non-straight person coming into a scene like this, you are probably going to gravitate towards others that are like you, and you're not going to see as many of them around you as if you were a white person coming into the scene. So I feel that there's, uh, there's an importance to, to those in the scene who uh, begin to, whether they like it or not, represent their gender or their race or their sexual orientation because the younger people there who are looking for someone to show them a way forward are going to be paying a lot of attention to them. And I was curious in talking to, to certain people that I interviewed if they felt, if they were aware of that and if they felt that that was at all a pressure on them to comport themselves in, in an especially ethical or moral way because there would be people looking at them saying, wow, uh, he or she is like me, and I want to you know, see what they're doing or how they're doing it. Uh, and it was interesting to, to talk about those things and also to be able to talk about them if the individual wanted to talk about that at length. It didn't need to be edited down to a little 15-second nugget. We could really sort of explore the idea and see where that went. And not in a precious or a corny way, but in a, in a very genuine way. Uh, and it, that's what I got from that. So as long as we're on the topic of age, as we can see from the pictures, a large number of the people you interview are adults. You mentioned that the age range has been from 19 to 75, but uh, looking at the pictures, a lot of folks are adults. While I think punk rock and subculture generally is often assumed incorrectly to be something people do in their teenage years. Um, so. What do you find has made people stay more interested in punk later in life? And how, you've already mentioned that people kind of take punk ideals into their adult life, but uh, what do you think it is that makes people stay in punk later in life beyond our assumed subcultural years? I think that people build up a, a network of friends with a common interest. Uh, some months ago, actually, was the very beginning of this year, we had out the photographer Cynthia Connolly, uh, who had worked with a lot of DC bands, and she took beautiful, iconic pictures of Minor Threat, Fugazi, and Rites of Spring, and, and all these DC bands. And um, she wrote a really influential book called Band of DC. When she did her presentation with us, she talked about how she had met such intensely creative and interesting people in punk that she had stayed connected to many of them through the years, and that it, met, it had meant so much to her, these people that, that she met at the scene. Uh, and there was an audience member, it was uh, one of the members of a, a Philly, old Philly band called Scram, which was always one of my favorite of the Philly bands of the 80s and early 90s. And he asked her a question. He said that he felt that the, the best people that he had ever met and the strongest relationships that he ever had was in punk, and that later in life he never really connected to people, anyone as strongly as the people he met within that scene. And he was curious if she had had the same experience, which she did. She said that she had met as, as many people in her other artistic endeavors uh, as, as in punk. But I could understand what he was saying because I think that there's, there's an intensity that comes about. I think that some people have this experience if they're, uh, they're in the military or they're part of a religious group or went to camp where there's a time where they're so close to people and the emotions are running so high that they develop a really strong bond with those individuals. And I think that for some people who went through the punk scene, uh, which can be uh, violent and chaotic and the events can be broken up by police and there can be fights with skinheads, there can be all kinds of crazy things going on that this bond is formed. And I think that that um, 
has really kept people involved uh, with punk uh, as they grew older, even if only tangentially. At the very least, in talking to close, I mean, edging on 100 people at this point, uh, probably 80-something people, uh, that I, was, I was really surprised that they weren't cynical. Uh, and that they weren't, at least the people I talked to, dismissive. Uh, because for me, the absolute worst thing is to view life from a distance of, uh, of cynicism, where you're sort of looking down your patrician nose or looking through your microscope at all the little squirming paramecium. Um, and that, that distance uh, is, is a soul killer. It's the, it's the enemy of any form of creativity. And I think that these people that I spoke to retained enthusiasm for life, not purely from punk, but I think that that contributed to that, and I think that that was a rather beautiful thing that they, they've kept moving forward into their lives. And also gives them a really healthy fuck you attitude, which is necessary at times. I think that the people who have learned that they don't have to acquiesce to the demands of a, of a false authority, that if someone tells them, someone in a, in a supposed position of power tells them to do something that is morally or ethically reprehensible to them, or just stupid, that their bullshit detector will go off, and they'll, they'll probably, hopefully, have the ability to say no. So, with that idea of, there is a, an almost knee-jerk reaction against authority in punk. Uh, even if these are not folks who would identify as anarchists or political at all, there's still a rejection to authority, to rules. There's a fuck you to the world. Um, we were talking about role models a minute ago. How does one who's aging, who perhaps does feel a certain responsibility to the scene, work with being a role model and being an older punk in a scene while having people kind of in instinctually react against any kind of authority? I guess, it's, I guess what they would have to do is not come over as an authoritarian figure. Nobody wants to deal with the know-it-all and the sort of person uh, that I referenced that you would often see in these documentaries, like, oh, yeah, you know, I, all that shit was over by 82, man, you kids don't know anything. Nobody wants to hear that motherfucker. Like, that is the worst person to, to ever have to communicate with. And I think that young people coming in are going to butt up against their elders uh, in the scene. And some of them they're going to find to be people who they can relate to. There's an individual I interviewed, Chuck Meehan. And Chuck Meehan, when, when you know, I was young and coming into the scene, was some years older than me, had done shows, and was the, was the coolest guy. Everybody revered uh, Chuck Meehan as being the, someone who had been around forever and was a genuinely cool and welcoming, nice person. And through successive generations of, of young people coming through the city, everyone still loves this fellow because uh, he's not condescending, he's not lecherous towards the women that come into the scene, uh, he's, he's enthusiastic and yet doesn't seem to be the sort of person who's, who's stunted in their emotional or intellectual development, so he's not living in mom's basement still at however old he is now, probably in his early 50s. You know, he is a, a functioning member of society who genuinely really likes this music and the, the people respect both young and old. Um, and I think that's probably the, the best way to, if you were an older person involved in this thing, is to, you know, maybe the, share some music or, or some experience with someone, but never come over as a sort of a condescending know-it-all who's, you know, jaded by all of life. As long as we're on this kind of topic of the rejection of authority and so forth, punk is sometimes a very political subculture, um, though I would argue it's not inherently so, and there are certainly apolitical people, as we've discussed, nihilistic folks. For most of the folks you've talked to, do they have a political mindset or a mindset that's critical of political and social structures? I would say in general, yes, but it was such a wide variety of people who had come into the scene from so many different angles that that would vary pretty dramatically and may have varied depending on the time in which I spoke to the individual. You know, if I spoke to them 10 years ago, that they may have a very different feeling than today. Uh, but in order to, to, to interview a group of people who were, were really reflective of, of the scene in the city over the course of several decades, these were all different types of folks, and some of them were overtly political and remained overtly political, and others were in no way political, but perhaps had this sort of approach where the personal was the political, so that they put forward uh, sort of 
identity type ideas that were in effect political because maybe that identity that they had was in opposition to what was accepted within the greater society. So some people I, I think still have uh, a, a political engagement uh, but it's really quite varied just because it's a great number of people involved. So kind of following up on that question, um, of course Donald fucking Trump was just elected president. What impact do you think that might have on punk rock scenes, punk rock in general? I think that the election of Trump uh, will certainly create a clamor throughout the country of people who will, in effect, suffer under his presidency. Uh, I mean, punk is, is certainly no exception, but I don't think it's necessarily the, the forefront of all political activism or the forefront of all voicing that opposition to the president. But I do think that, that everyone who will be affected by him will probably want to vocalize uh, their disgust in some way or another. Uh, for some people who are going to be affected by this, uh, it's going to be uh, an existential threat. And, and existential not as in John Paul Sartre and uh, you know, Simone de Beauvoir smoking a cigarette in Paris, but rather like their lives will be affected. So people who are potentially going to be booted out of the country or put in prison may not have the luxury of forming a cool band to sing songs about Trump. But others are going to use whatever they have available to them, which will be musical instruments for some people, as a means of protesting. So does uh, Donald Trump make punk great again? Yeah, I think punk's been pretty good over the years, so I don't think it necessarily needs that. But I do think it's just going to be another way of, of vocalizing uh, an opposition to what appears to be a, an absolutely tyrannical leader. I mean, we don't know yet, but we could go by what he said, uh, and uh, I think that we're, everyone would need to be able to ultimately raise a, a voice against uh, President Trump. <laughs> so, throughout the years you've been doing these interviews, what has surprised you the most? I think that what surprised me was something that I mentioned earlier was that with the lack of cynicism in the people that I spoke to. Because I think before meeting with all these folks, I just imagined that a lot of people would say, "Oh, well, I remember doing that, and that was fun." But I, I didn't, I didn't realize that the emotional resonance would have run so deep, and that they would have had such strong and warm feelings about these things. And I'm speaking mostly in, in that case about the, the older people who are far more detached from their youth. The younger people are more fully immersed in that scene, so I'm not at all surprised. But I was really happy to see the people who were older still had warm, strong feelings about their involvement in that, and that was very heartening to me. So, to kind of bring it around to talking about Philadelphia specifically, since that is where all of your interviews are from, uh, what, if anything, do you think is unique about punk rock here in Philadelphia? I, I think What's most interesting is that there's never been a definitive Philly sound. Uh, geographically, obviously, we're, we're located between two scenes that have had very strong definitive sounds. Uh, Washington, D.C. and New York. New York hardcore, D.C. hardcore are uh, titanic in, in, within the world of punk. And there was never a Philly scene. And this maybe, in, in some ways, maybe worked against Philadelphia because it didn't uh, because it didn't have a defined scene, it didn't maybe draw as many people to the city, but at the same time it allowed for a lot more creativity within the city of Philadelphia because no one felt like uh, this is the city of uh, straight-edge youth core band, so that is what we must form. Uh, so you had a wide variety of all different types of bands and, and, and other ancillary interests, not just music involved in punk, but bands, and I think that that has worked to Philly's advantage, and also the advantage that at least as of fairly recently, it was an affordable city to live in if you were not a wealthy person. So you could come into Philadelphia and you could find a group house or warehouse or something that you could live in and be able to, to use the basement to have shows. And this was, you, could, you wouldn't be doing this in Manhattan, you obviously can't do this in Brooklyn now. Uh, you know, DC is, is probably not as possible as it once was. So Philly was, was known for many years as a place where you could come and live fairly cheaply and do stuff. Uh, and there were certain parts of the city, uh, and I would say especially West Philadelphia, that drew uh, a lot of political people, uh, a lot of people who were very uh, engaged and felt that this was a, a welcoming community, and that they would be able to even stretch out beyond punk and do other 
uh, creative artistic endeavors that there was a, a DIY community to support. And I think that's always been the real advantage of Philadelphia and it's something that I hope still sticks around as maybe you know rents go up that it's still a place that people come to to do neat stuff. You just mentioned kind of the diversity of the Philly scene, that there's been a lot of different sounds. Uh, you can think of some of the hardcore and metal influence bands, and then a band as poppy as the Dead Milkmen. Um, another kind of diversity that seems to exist here, that at least you've been in the Philly punk scene longer than I have. Um, and one of the divisions I've always seen in the Philly punk scene is the weird one between West and South Philly, where West Philly being the kind of political, radical, vegan punks in South Philly hating the PC punks of West Philly. Has that division existed as long as you've been here? Uh, I, I wouldn't say, Bull, do you think that that's always been a thing? You don't mind if I draw your head? I mean, I've always known West Philly as being very, as, as very political, but I never really paid as much attention to, to South Philly as being a, a scene until more recent years. Would it, So where do you see the Laufest Philly project going in the future? I, I, I would like to just keep it going in the direction that it's going. Uh, I, people have asked me, is, is the end, end result a, a book or is the end result a documentary? And it, it, it isn't, it wouldn't be, because that, that would change into a, a different form. The idea was that it was going to be this uh, tapestry of voices where the individual components of the tapestry might be a little ugly, and I don't mean the interview subjects, I don't mean to insult them, but that the overall whole would be really beautiful. So that what you would have is, you know, at this point, 78 interviews, perhaps at some point 100 interviews, but there would be just hours and hours of people telling all of these stories, some of which would intersect and some would never connect to one another, but there would just be an adding on, and you can come in at any point and listen to these people tell the stories of their lives in, in the city. And that's all that I'd ever really want to do with it because I wouldn't want to take all of the, these hours and hours of, of interviews and try to whittle them down into something because it would be too much of a reflection of me, which I try to keep away from it. I mean, here in, in speaking to an audience, I'm free to express my feelings on these issues. But in doing the interviews, I try to keep myself at a certain distance because I don't want to uh, editorialize too much and I don't want to shape people's words into the ideas that I want to put forward or into the people that I want them to be. Uh, so I think that if there was any pruning of the interviews, it really would become something that was somewhat disingenuous and not the true form that it is now. Now it requires effort from the listener. It's not going to be something that would ever be particularly popular because people don't necessarily want to listen to interviews that are this long and not edited and don't have cool music in the background and other stuff. You know, it's, it could be a, you know, a, a chore, but yet if you enjoy what these people are saying in the stories, it could be really enjoyable. Um, I hope it is, but uh, I would never want it to be something else and I don't really want to do anything else with it. Um, I would love to open up to questions from the audience now. You know, it's punk rock, so it's participatory. subject that you approached, uh, an individual that you approached that sort of seemed distant from participating or maybe had some cynicism uh, that once you actually started the interview they just opened up like a giant party balloon or party or something. I think most of the people that I interviewed, I didn't know going into the interviews. I think sometimes people have thought that these were all my friends and like all the cool people that I hung out with, and it's certainly not the case. Most of them I would come to cold. I would know something about the individual because there would have to be some reason for me to do the interview, but I really wouldn't know how this person would comport themselves, are they willing to speak, because these aren't the people who are being interviewed for the books and the documentaries, so they're not necessarily professional speakers, and they may well never have been interviewed before. Uh, so there's always this hope on my part that the person is going to communicate with me. Uh, and then there's always a tremendous relief when they start talking. And you know, people can be a little awkward and stiff at first, but I, you know, this is the tape recorder that I do the interviews with. It's, it's an innocuous little nothing. 
So nobody really notices it. Once we're sitting in a, in a place and if the lighting is decent, we're just you know, facing one another, the person can forget that they're being interviewed and then it flows like a conversation. I don't come to the interviews with any kind of prepared questions. I have a few things in my head, but there's no sheet of questions. Uh, and the hope is that it goes in an organic way. And for the most part, that's where the opposite of what you asked has happened, where I had hopes, uh, I don't want to mention who the person is, although they are up there somewhere, it's not those two. Uh, I, I hope this person was going to speak with me, and then when we did the interview, uh, the gentleman gave me monosyllabic answers. Yes, no. And it was a, the interview was 13 minutes long, which is mostly me form, forming some awkward, giant question to get to some deep understanding, and then receiving, yeah, as a reply. Uh, and because the person was well known and the pictures were so nice of that person that I had to put it up there, but it's a terrible interview and it's embarrassing to me uh, and it's certainly a failure on my part, but uh, yeah. So there's been a couple of that, but mostly things have went pretty well. Did you have a question? Uh, no, we, um, that was Rick, right, uh, Black Hole Productions was, was this guy, Rick. He, uh, he was a few years older than, than the people that I came into the scene with, and he was a, was a character that we had felt we were in opposition to. Uh, maybe if we had gotten to know him better, or if we were closer in age, we, we maybe would have gotten along with him, but as young people, you know, we saw a guy, um, uh, who was, uh, he was, he was wearing, like, leather boots up to his knees and leather trousers and trench coats and stuff and we thought, oh, who is this weird old dude? And he would be putting on shows at bars that, that we couldn't get into and, and was maybe involved in some things that we found to be unsavory. So for us as young people, this was sort of, for better or worse, the enemy and we were going to do things in the exact opposite way. Uh, he later died of a heart attack at age 44 or something. Questions? Anybody? Please? You mentioned that you, uh, I guess, like, cold interview a lot of these people. How do you find out about them? Just, like, word of mouth? Because I've noticed that, like, you have some of the people who I've recognized are from a lot of different scenes. And um, I was just kind of wondering how exactly you find some of these people, especially because it's a very diverse group. And, um, yeah. uh, the, both the nightmare and the pleasure of, of interviewing anybody is that that person always says, oh man, you have to talk to this woman, and you gotta talk to this guy, and you gotta talk to this guy. Your project is not complete unless you talk to these people. So everybody brings along three or four recommendations of people you absolutely have to talk to. And then I, I begin to feel as this sort of, you know, almost like OCD complete, it's like, oh, it's not, it's not gonna be right if I send my focus, what if I don't get that person in there, they're gonna say what I was the person there. So then, then it's the process of digging up all of these other people and talking to them because the feeling is that they wouldn't have the sense of completeness without them. Um, and yeah, so I come in kind of cold with a lot of these people and then as I was saying earlier, just the hope that they're gonna want to talk to me and have something to say. But if they agree to do an interview, then we're halfway there. And that's, that's where they all, they all come from. Do you research the subjects once they agree to interview? Or do you just go in there with a set? Now, I have some research, because I need to know in, in what context do they fit in. I need to know the greater uh, history around them. Uh, you know, is, is there a significance to, to their band or their zine or, or whatever thing that they did? Uh, and how, at least in some ways, do they interconnect to other people? Uh, but there's not really a lot of uh, tools at my disposal to do a lot of research on, on these individuals, because a lot of these people haven't been interviewed before. So uh, I generally just sort of have to feel my way through it. And for the most part, it, it winds up working out and, and they can reveal to me what, what they feel are the most uh, important or crucial parts of their uh, personality or their, their living experience. What do you think is like, one thing that like, connects every person I interview? Like, is there like, a characteristic of these people that like, kind of draws everyone together? Uh, I think that, I think the most important thing, the, the only thing I think the thread that runs through all the people involved in that scene is the, is the DIY ethos. Uh, because I think that the, the politics can vary very dramatically, and I think that the taste in music, I mean, you know, something that's generally called punk or hardcore punk can, have, can sound very, very different to many different people. But the, the ethos of, of coming in and just of doing something, being an active participant, I think is the thing that, that excited most of these people more 
than anything else is that they were part of this rather than a spectator watching it happen before them that they were involved. And it didn't necessarily mean that they were people performing in a band, but they could be involved in, in many different other parts. They could be writing and they could be putting on an event and uh, you know they could be shooting photographs or video or anything like that. But they were active participants and I think that that is, is exciting for people to be a part of something rather than to be uh, you know, an inactive blob. Just to follow up on what you just no, said. I'm sorry. Uh, or, yeah, go ahead. No, I was, did someone have the random? Yeah, but you could just finish with that. We'll just follow, I do think that you're right, that, that DIY being an active participant is one of these things that people really take away from punk. So I know people who, for example, don't participate in punk at all anymore, but when you talk to them about how they do whatever it is they're doing now, they talk about punk, they talk about DIY. So for example, um, do you know John Foy? Uh, sort of. He was a member of the Philly punk scene. He recently made a movie about the Toynbee tiles that you see around uh, Philadelphia and the world, really. Um, and now he's a filmmaker up in New York. And I was talking to him one day, and I, we were talking about punk. And he said he was working at the time at MTV, which he said his teenage self would have just wanted to kill him for. But he was working at MTV, and there were very clear partitions of regarding what work you were supposed to do. Like, this is your little job, and you don't really step outside of your wheelhouse. And he said he just didn't understand it. He said, coming from punk, if something needed to be done, you did it. If the chairs need to be moved, you pick up the chairs. You don't wait for the, per the chair mover to show up. And if the trash needs to be taken out, you take out the trash. And if you need to edit the film, you edit the film. If you need to make the music, you make the music. And that folks he found that hadn't come out of punk didn't have that, like, well, you just do it and you'll figure it out attitude. Um, because most of the world is not quite as participatory as punk, is not quite as, I think, dedicated to just doing whatever needs to be done. And I think that's a lot of what you're getting at there. Oh, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I've seen a lot of people take, uh, take their punk forward in, in some really interesting projects that I think that they feel are the ultimate versions of their young selves. So those projects are, are distanced from punk. Uh, say the Prometheus, Prometheus Radio project that uh, Petra Dish did, which is, uh, he, he's based out of West Philadelphia, bringing community radios to small communities around the world. So, uh, you know, a little community in a country in Africa has a community radio that he helps them set up and they're able to broadcast out to a, a certain area around them. And this desire to find this means of allowing people to communicate with one another, uh, the seed is probably drawn from punk, uh, in his case, perhaps. And then another example is I interviewed a fellow named Neil, who was in a really famous uh, New York crustcore band called uh, Nausea, uh, who was very political New York squatters of the 80s and in, into the early 90s. Uh, and he now lives on a, a DIY farm in Oregon growing organic vegetables. Um, and he has a little meme that he made, it was a picture of him performing in Nausea in 1980-whatever, and he's you know, holding the microphone and he has long dreadlocks and he, he's missing most of his teeth and he weighs 12 pounds. Uh, and then there's a little uh, arrow and it says, ideal, and then the next, the picture that's beside it is, is him today, where he's got a long beard and he's a little portly, uh, and he's holding a a uh, bushel of kumquats or something, you know, in, a, in this uh, organic farm in, in Oregon. And, and he feels that this is the, the ultimate ideal version of the person that he was then, that he has this sort of more clean living and that he's directly involved in putting something out in the world that's positive. And he would attribute this to what he, he got through moving through that scene. Uh, and, you know, when I did the interview with him, I, uh, we did it, he lives in a little, little shack on the corner of the farm that's uh, uh, very humble and he owns uh, almost nothing uh, and he was the happiest uh, gentlest fellow who just radiated just a tremendous warmth uh, and in order to do the interview I kind of had to help him do some farm junk which I'm not accustomed to doing because I live in this you know dumpy city so you know I had to water these plants and pull this thing up and do this stuff and then finally we got to to sit down and, and talk and um, and I think that that's been true of a lot of people is that they found the, the thing that, that would really positively affect people based on their ethos and then living, whether it's teaching or 
running a food co-op or uh, uh, you know working at the farm or whatever any of these other people did. Uh, you had a question. Uh, I think it's probably most people's experience, certainly touring bands, because it's the cheapest stuff for someone to produce en masse. Uh, so I think if you want to feed a large group of people, you probably have the worst spaghetti in the world to eat. And you're probably happy to eat it because, you know, most touring bands would be getting an allotment of five or six dollars a day. Uh, so that spaghetti, pretty good. <laughs> Did you have a question about that? I think that there's always been a lot of different veins. So while the, the overculture may say now grunge is, is the thing, uh, or now techno is the thing, and, and for some people that will be the thing, but there's always going to be these, these other layers, these other veins that are running through that are going to espouse different sets of ideals. So below the surface a little bit, you're going to find more of a DIY ethos, and that's going to, I think, move straight on through from the onset. I mean, really, in some, in some sense, an extension of uh, 60s uh, subculture uh, with with hippies and then moving on through these punks and and, and always bubbling below the surface. So if someone can tell you that uh, you know punk punks over or uh, you know all the bands just want to make a lot of money, but there's always going to be a teenager in a basement thrashing because they can. You know, and it's I think that the reason why this scene is has stayed vital for a lot of people is because uh, as I said the level of getting into it is pretty low, and also there's something that's always going to appeal to people to just make a lot of clamorous noise. And whether you call it punk, whatever you call it doesn't really matter, but it's really more what you do with it and how, how it affects people. So I think that that always will remain uh, moving through the underground. Um, and you know, the hope is that people don't just want to sit and look at their, you know, their phones all day. Uh, that they'll want to actually go do something like, you know, jump on somebody's head into the basement, or, you know, things that are genuinely more creative than that, but still, to viscerally, to physically act, to engage with the world, rather than to just view it through a distance. Any other cues? Please. In the uh, Positive Force documentary, it mentions, like, it sort of highlights Cabbage Collective as like a, like a Philadelphia result of what they were doing. Do you, when Cabbage Collective started, were you just do, happened to like be doing it? Like you had the idea, like let's do something positive and wow, it's something similar, or were you directly influenced like by that? Was, was Positive Force the reason that you started Cabbage Collective? Or did it just happen to be something that sort of- It was not the sole influence, but it was one of several. We had looked at, in New York was ABC No Rio, which was doing DIY shows. Uh, in California was uh, Gilman Street Project, 924 Gilman uh, in Berkeley, and then Positive Force in DC. And all of these different groups were doing the thing that we wanted to see in Philadelphia that wasn't being done in Philadelphia. There were certainly DIY hardcore shows, but these were shows that had uh, a stronger ethos or um, ideals behind them. And uh, yeah, Positive Force was, was clearly a big, big influence on us, and uh, I was really happy. To, see a picture of Mark Anderson from Positive Force there, who's a great example of somebody who has taken his um, beliefs forward into his life. He, he runs a group that uh, brings food to elderly shut-ins. Um, and he, a lot of the people who are part of this group who are bringing this food to these people are coming out of the punk scene. He's always been very vocal uh, politically uh, and has put it forward into genuine social action. Uh, 
and he he was a great person to talk to because in the course of the interview I think he began to cry at least like three or four times because he's a very emotional person and it's you know it's a strange for me to be interviewing someone who's sitting across from someone who I can see the tears well in their, up in their eyes, but his feelings for this thing that he was involved in was so strong that it, it um, you know, made him physically react, and, and I thought that this was just fantastic, and it was really, um, it was great to meet someone who had done something so positive and it had such a, an effect on, on other people. Did you have a... Okay, sorry, I thought you were... Uh, no, you were with the beer, but... Uh, any other questions? Okay, so I do encourage everyone to go to the Loudfest Philly website. Um, you can listen to all the interviews there. I think they vary quite a bit in length. Yeah, well, the lamest one is 13 minutes yeah. long, and the longest one is, uh, I think, close to three hours. Yeah. Um, you can listen to all of them there. You can also see Karen's photographs there um, for a little self-promotion. Some of her photographs are also in the book I recently put out about Philly punk called uh, Ethics, Politics, and Anarcho-Punk Identifications. Which is an excellent book. Thanks. <laughs> so you can also see photos in there, and you can find out more about the Philly punk scene there. That, like, uh, his project is also based in interviews, uh, though it's different in that mine are cut. There are sections of interviews. It's not just a collection of interviews. It's, uh, it's a sociology book that it is about Philly punk. Um, all right, well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, and for those in my class, I'll see you Tuesday. I just thought, Ed, if anyone's interested... Uh, oh, man, there's no class next week, sorry. Uh, sorry, I'm uh, presenting a documentary to our hosting, a documentary of Philomoka tomorrow night. Uh, about the last days of Sid and Nancy, infamous uh, heroin addicts. And we'll have a guest there, a gentleman from a band called Pure Hell, which was a 70s proto-punk and then later punk band based out of Philly. Uh, so that'll be a Phil Mocha tomorrow night if anybody is interested in that thing. Um, it's, the movie's called Sad Vacation, if you want to look up the event. Um, and thank you, Ed, uh, for having me. And thank you uh, all for coming out and actually listening to me babble away. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I believe it is. Oh, yeah, let me know how the recording turned out. Oh, yeah, let me turn that thing off.